The South Carolina Supreme Court sets the date for oral arguments on the heartbeat bill. Ukraine begins their spring offensive. Moms for Liberty get labeled as a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Chris Christie and Mike Pence enter the race for president. All this and much more on today's show. This is Truth in Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Welcome in, everybody. Thanks for joining me for Truth and Politics and Culture today. We appreciate you finding the show. You can always find me at drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. And we hope you'll uh, tell other people about the show. You can find it on Facebook. It's on Facebook Live. You can also find me at YouTube. And later on, the show will be uploaded as a podcast. And you can download it and listen to it at your leisure. All right. Um, I want to start out with the South Carolina Supreme Court story today because this is something obviously, obviously that here in South Carolina is a big deal. We've got abortion clinics in South Carolina that are adding extra hours to their schedule just to keep up with the number of women that are coming here from other states to kill their babies in the womb. And I, I don't, I'm not going to sugarcoat that because that's exactly what's happening. And it's a, it's a terrible situation something that our legislature finally dealt with at the end of the session. Actually, we had to extend the session to get H-474, which is the heartbeat bill, a revised version of the heartbeat bill, passed and to the governor's desk. He signed it into law uh, quickly after it was passed and then asked the South Carolina Supreme Court to expedite a hearing. They asked for an emergency hearing. A circuit court, of course, enjoined the bill, kept it from going into effect. They, um, the circuit courts are always going to hear Planned Parenthood's arguments, and they're going to enjoin any bill that has anything to do with protecting life in the womb. And so right now, women are flooding into South Carolina, um, and women in South Carolina are lining up to get abortions because the concern is that the South Carolina Supreme Court maybe, just maybe, will uphold this version of the heartbeat bill. I mean, how tragic would it be that we couldn't just have abortions up to 22 weeks in South Carolina? That's that's kind of the attitude, of course, of progressives, and it's the attitude and concern of conservatives that we would be able to get that number turned way back, way down, uh, not as far as I'd like to see it, but far enough that South Carolina will stop being an abortion destination state, which right now it is the leading, the only abortion destination state in the Southeast. All right, this is, I'm just going to read the court order to you. Now I'm just going to, I'm going to skip a lot of this code act numbers and things like that, that are, you, you know, I, I doubt you would, they would have any meaning for you. I know they don't have any for me because I, I'm not going to look up all these different codes but this is what the Supreme Court said in releasing the order yesterday. Following a, following a decision by a majority of this court that the Fetal Heartbeat and Protection from Abortion Act was unconstitutional, the South Carolina General Assembly revised the 2021 Act and enacted 2023 South Carolina Acts. The governor signed the 2023 Act into law on May 24th. On May 26, the Circuit Court granted respondents' motion to enjoin enforcement of the 2023 Act pending their action to declare the 2023 Act unconstitutional. Appellates have now filed an emergency petition for with this court asking it to supersede the injunction issued by the Circuit Court. Appellants further seek to transfer the case to this court for resolution. The petition for um, supersedis is denied, which simply means that they're not going to overturn the circuit court's ban. That's not unusual. It's disappointing. It would be nice if the will of the people of South Carolina is expressed through the legislature um, that that law could actually go into effect, stay in effect while it's being debated. But it's pretty common that a law, until the constitutionality is, dis is determined, 
is put in abeyance. So right now, the South Carolina heartbeat bill is enjoined, which is why we're seeing such an upsurge in the number of women coming to the state for abortion and in South Carolina getting abortions because that they know that the window of opportunity here may be sort of closing. Um, a lot of observers, and, and who knows, a lot of observers said that the South Carolina Supreme Court would never find the original heartbeat bill unconstitutional under the South Carolina state constitution. But it did. Uh, Kay Hearn's majority opinion that she wrote found a woman's right to privacy and that it couldn't be violated with a six-week ban. And so now the court is different. We have, as, and you're going to hear this, this, this is a progressive mantra. When a, cur, a court maybe moves to the right, then anything that the progressives can come up with, besides the fact that philosophically some of the justices now may actually read the Constitution for what it says, they don't want to talk about that fact, so they're going to use a little misdirection, kind of like a magic show. They don't want you to look at what's going on over here in this hand. They want you to pay attention to what they're telling you is going on over here with this hand. And what they're telling you is that this is a tragedy because this is an all-male court. How can an all-male court decide an issue that involves women? Well, um, all-male courts, all-female courts, it shouldn't matter. What matters is what the Constitution says. And a man and a woman should be able to read the Constitution if they're going to be textualist, if they're going to be originalist, if they're going to be concerned about what the law actually says and what the intent of those who wrote the law is, is actually brought to the table. It shouldn't matter the gender of the justice. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not opposed to a woman being on the South Carolina Supreme Court. I'm not opposed to the South Carolina Supreme Court being all female. What I'm opposed to is sexual politics being injected into the abortion debate for the purpose of undermining a potential decision by this court because it's very possible that the justice that was added is going to be more concerned about the text of the Constitution of the state of South Carolina than they are about a political agenda. And, th and that's what I want. I want the court to look at the law and make decisions based on the Constitution, not based on their desire to change the law that has been written by the legislature. And I'm telling you, that's what progressives do. Progressives think now that they're only hope because they're losing these battles in, in states. Um, they're losing them um, in, at the ballot box. A lot of these battles over contentious issue, issues like gender, um, transgender issues, LGBTQ issues in general, uh, the, the public, the people of this country are finally beginning to stand up and say that they've had enough of this nonsense and they're beginning to push back. And that has progressives in a panic. And so they want the courts. They want to be sure that they have some kind of buffer because they can't get, they, they can't get their their way through the legislature, so they want to get their way through the courts and through corporate America. That's why they put so much pressure on companies like Target, like Walmart, like Anheuser-Busch, like Kohl's. All these different companies are being railroaded into putting forth products and promoting ideas that the majority of Americans find alarming and, quite frankly, many find disgusting. And so... When these corporations get involved and the American people push back, the left begins to panic because their philosophy of taking over the courts and allowing corporate America to work in tandem with the government to change the culture, um, once that looks like that's going to fail, then progressives begin to panic a little bit. Um, so in any event, the Supreme Court in South Carolina, is it's, it's made up of all-male um, it's not the first time. It won't be the last time. And certainly there will be women on the court in the future. Uh, the, the South Carolina legislature determined that Justice Gary Hill was the best one to put on the court. Now, this is, this is something else that is a pressure campaign directed at Justice Hill, by the way. When all of these progressives begin to yowl and scream 
about how unfair the South Carolina Supreme Court is because they suspect that they, it might be inclined to uphold this version of the heartbeat bill. When they begin to do that, they're directing a lot of that angst and anger at Justice Hill because they're going to try and shame him and intimidate him into voting against the H-474, against its constitutionality. That uh, They would like to see that happen. They would like to, to attack the fact that the court is all male. Well, if Justice Hill is male, which he is, and he just got added to the court, then it's his fault somehow. And that if he rules in a way that Justice K. Hearn would not have ruled, and we already know how Justice K. Hearn ruled, then if Justice Hill goes against that, then they're going to turn that in. They're they're turning it into an attack against him as being misogynist, as being um, not qualified because he's not female. And how dare you step into the court and change the makeup of the court ideologically when it was a female who was holding the line to allow women to kill their babies in the womb? I mean, this is this is the way progressives work. It's the pressure that they bring to bear. Uh, will Justice Hill? Uh, stand against that pressure and rule in this case according to the text of the Constitution? We certainly hope so. Uh, everything that he has said in being selected to the South Carolina Supreme Court suggests that his philosophy is going to be textualist, originalist, that he's going to look at the law and make the decision not based on the screams and the yells of progressives like Planned Parenthood, but based on what the law says. And so we need to pray that that's what happens. Now, while the court refused to allow the heartbeat bill to go into um, to, to go into an effect, effect, they allowed it to stay suspended or um, enjoined until the final decision, they did agree to go ahead and take the case. Uh, we do transfer, I'm back to reading from the court order now, we do transfer the matter to this court for final resolution and, and expedite the briefing schedule as follows. Now, this is important because if you believe that life should be protected in the womb, you need to write down this schedule so that you can pray at the times that are indicated here by the court, specifically because we're going to go through a process in the Supreme Court where briefs are submitted. We're going to go through a process where testimony is taken, oral arguments are made. We're going to go through a process where the justices are reviewing all of this material and at each stage in this process, we as followers of Jesus Christ need to be praying for the wisdom of the court. We need to be praying that they will uphold this, this bill as being constitutional uh, because it, it, there's, when you go back and look at what Article 10 of Section 1 of the South Carolina Constitution says, it's an article that was put in place in the early 1970s, 1972, I believe, that was in reaction to J. Edgar Hoover, who was then head of the FBI, the way he was conducting FBI surveillance. Uh, people were concerned that their rights were going to be violated, and they were talking about privacy rights related to unlawful search and seizure. It had nothing to do with abortion. I mean, obviously, it, this is before Roe versus Wade. This was never intended. This law, as, as it was written into the South Carolina Constitution, was never intended to have anything to do with a woman's right to decide whether to have an abortion or not. It had to do with a man and a woman, or a woman or, or a man, being in their home or having their possessions unlawfully taken from them by the government through illegal search and seizure or uh, warrantless wiretaps, things like that. It was personal privacy that extended to the in, by the rule of law in how people related to the government and whether or not they could be charged with a crime. It had nothing to do with abortion. And so hopefully that's what these justices are going to see. All right, so here's the schedule. Um, the party shall agree on all matters to be included in an appendix by 5 p.m. on June 9, 2023. Now, that just means that everything that will be considered by the court, by Planned Parenthood and by those, by the Attorney General of South Carolina who's going to defend the law, 
All the particulars have to be in for the court to consider by June 9th. Appellants shall serve their briefs on respondents by 5 p.m. on June 14th. At the same time, appellants shall file 11 copies of their brief and 11 copies of the appendix with this court, along with proof of service, with one copy of the brief and one copy of the appendix filed unbound. Uh, respondents shall, by 5 p.m. on June 20th, 2023, serve appellants with their briefs and file with this court 11 copies of their briefs along with proof of service and so forth. Any reply briefs shall be served and filed in the same manner as above by 5 p.m. on June 23rd. Here's the big deal. Oral arguments will be held at 9.30 a.m., on June 27th, 2023. And I, I would suggest that there be a fast called for that day, um, that we as believers should fast and pray and seek the Lord as these oral arguments are being made because we'll be able to tell at least something about how the court is thinking but when the oral, oral arguments take place. And we need to pray for those who are uh, going to be involved in making those arguments on behalf of the unborn, and we need to pray that the justices' hearts will be touched by those arguments and that their minds will be focused on the text of the law, the text of the Constitution, and that they will push back against this progressive attack that's going to come against them because all they've got, uh, all progressives have, is pressure tactics here uh, to push back against the court. So June 26th, Oral arguments, 9.30 a.m., South Carolina Supreme Court on S-474. All right, the Ukraine has launched a much-anticipated a much offensive, and there's some interesting parts to this that I wanted to talk about for a few minutes today. I know that uh, the war in Ukraine is controversial among conservatives. There are those that think that we don't have a dog in this fight. We shouldn't be over there. Um, and, of course, we're not over there uh, technically, we do have special forces. We know from document link leaks from the Pentagon that we do have American special forces working behind the scenes. And, and as, I, as I said when that was revealed, I've always believed that the United States was there and had people on the ground to some level. With as much money and hardware and support that's going into Ukraine, uh, there was no way that we weren't going to have people on the ground to help the Ukrainians know how to use this equipment, but also to help direct actions behind the scene. We know the British are doing that. In fact, the British have more special forces in Ukraine uh, than the United States has. But this is a, a lot of conservatives, the point being that they don't think that we have any business giving Ukraine all this money, that we don't have any obligation to protect them against Russia, that it's not our fight. Some far-right conservatives believe Vladimir Putin is a Christian who is absolutely doing good things in Russia. He's, uh, you know, standing up against transgender, homosexuality, so forth, and that he has a right as the to go after Ukraine and to reunite them. There are even those who believe that Russia and Ukraine should be united for religious purposes, and therefore they support Russia in this. Um, I, I have to confess, I, I don't know how you turn a murderous dictator like Vladimir Putin into some kind of believer. Um, it doesn't matter what he says about his faith. It matters about how he treats people, and the man's an assassin. I mean, if you end up opposing Vladimir Putin, you're probably going to end up dead, either poisoned or in some other way dispatched. He's, he's sort of like President Snow in The Hunger Games. I mean, you you decide you're on the opposite side of him, and they're going to deliver a bowl of berries to you. Uh, this, it, this guy, how we could possibly define the action that Russia has taken against Ukraine? I mean, you're talking about um, a, a sovereign country that's been invaded by an aggressive neighbor who just wants the territory. I mean, when Crimea was taken... Uh, the Obama administration response was to send the Ukrainian army some mobile meals so they could be well-fed while they were getting routed by Russian troops. Um, at least this time, NATO and countries in Europe and along with the United States have sent the military expertise and the hardware and the money necessary to repel this Russian invasion, or at least to hold it at bay for the time being. 
right now, German-made Leopard tanks, you know, we, we're supposed to, the United States was supposed to send our M1 Abram tanks over there. Uh, we're, so far, we haven't, and I suspect it's because we don't have them to spare. Since we've got all of these, um, the problems that we have with getting the parts for the tanks, uh, the problems that Pete Buttigieg, uh, as transportation transportation secretary, has refused to address in any meaningful way, uh, we're we're having problems maintaining our own military, let alone sending tanks over to Ukraine. But Germany um, has already released a number of Leopard tanks, and they were seen moving toward Russian lines, which indicates likely that the Ukrainian army has decided to commit its NATO-trained forces on this all-out offensive. If you start seeing a lot of NATO equipment that has been supplied to the Ukrainian army brought to the forefront, you can be sure that this is an all-out offensive. Right now, it appears to be an American military tactic known as a reconnaissance by force. And the way that works is they, they launch smaller offensive maneuvers into Russian lines to determine a couple of things. They want to find out the strength of the Russian army of those positions. They want to know how, how dug in they are. They want to know their weaknesses. Where are the pressure points that they could then, as they launch the full offensive, begin to exploit? And so after a few days of this, then they're probably going to come back with what will be a full offensive against Russian positions. Ukraine is still waiting uh, on U.S. training for pilots who are going to fly the promised F-16 fighters. President Biden finally backed off and said, okay, we'll supply some F-16s and we'll supply the training for Ukrainian pilots to be able to fly them. But since the training is just beginning, it's unlikely that they're going to have an impact in this offensive. And even I, here's the thing, too, to think about this. I mean, it, just purely relating to this particular war, um, if, if even if you get Ukrainian pilots trained on the F-16, they're not going to be experienced in combat tactics in the F-16. That takes time. There's some things that you can learn in a classroom. There's some things that you can learn only by experience. And they're going to be going up against Russian pilots that have combat experience. Uh, Russia has, uh, you know, a, a, a formidable air force, and they've also got a pretty extensive surface-to-air missile system that the F-16 pilots that have just been trained in how to fly these things are going to have to contend with. So it's probably, I, I doubt seriously that the F-16s, even if they get um, to Ukraine as this uh, conflict is going on, this offensive is taking place, I doubt seriously that they're going to make a big difference on the side of the Ukrainians. Uh, now, what about a peace agreement? A lot of people are talking about the fact, well, maybe this is Ukraine launching this offensive in order to be in the driver's seat when they get all of the people to the table to talk about peace. Uh, I, I, I really don't think we can talk about a peace agreement right now with Ukraine and Russia simply because the Ukrainians want to take back territory that, Ru that the Russians have already taken from them. Don the Donbass uh, region, east, south, south to Crimea, because it, it, the, it looks like the plan of this particular offensive is for them, for the Ukrainian army to move east and then turn south into Crimea. And Russia doesn't want to give that territory back. I mean, I, I don't see how a peace agreement is going to form when the two countries are that far apart on something as key as how much Ukrainian territory is going to stay in Russian possession. And the other question is Russia doesn't want Ukraine to be independent. In other words, they want the Ukrainians to be somehow dependent on Russia for its security, and the Ukrainians want to be dependent on the West. They want to be able to make their allegiances, allegiances however they see fit. And, of course, you can imagine why, because... Yeah, I mean, what's already happened to them? I mean, the, the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapon, weapons back in 1995 in an agreement with the Clinton administration, and part of that agreement was that the United States would defend the Ukraine uh, once that, it, it went, in order to get them to give up their nukes, which was their manner of self-defense. And so the United States and NATO countries have been living up 
to those terms in the sense that they've been providing weapons and money, um, bullets and bombs to the Ukrainians, and that they've also been putting sanctions on Russia that admittedly hasn't had the effect that a lot of people in the West thought they would, but at least it's NATO and the United States trying to fulfill a commitment it made to Ukraine back in 95 when they decided to get rid of their nukes. All right, um, let's move on and look at a couple of other stories today. There's a lot of stuff going on in the news today. We're not going to get to all of it, which is it's a good thing we still got uh, Thursday and Friday after today to get through all these stories. Um, we're coming up on the South on the Southern Baptist Convention, I should say. I'll be leaving on Saturday uh, to head to New Orleans for the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. It'll take place on Tuesday and Wednesday of next week. But in between then, there are other meetings. I, I serve on the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. I'll be going to an executive committee meeting associated with that. Um, th then there will be the pastor's conference that will take place and, of course, the convention meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. One of the big controversies that's going to be determined or discussed next week is the fact that the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee has expelled Saddleback Church and four other churches that have female pastors. They voted on a recommendation from the SBC Credentials Committee on Tuesday, yesterday, to label the five churches as not in friendly cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, if you're not familiar with the way the Southern Baptist Convention works, um, it's, it's all the churches are autonomous. It's, it's not like the Southern Baptist Convention owns them or can tell them directly what to do. So this, um, what really is going on here is when they say they're not in friendly cooperation, that means that fellowship will be withdrawn. And when fellowships withdrawn, cooperative program funding is sent back to these churches and they're not considered to be Southern Baptist churches in friendly cooperation anymore. Um, so let's see if I can, I'm getting a text message here. This is, this is what doing the show live is like when you don't have a producer. Um, I'm getting a text message from Senator Kimbrell. He's going to join me, I think, at 8 a.m. Let's see if that's still going to work for him. I've got to put this in there and ask the question, and then I'll get a response from him. Senator Josh Kimbrell in South Carolina was instrumental in getting the heartbeat bill passed through the Senate, and so I wanted to talk to him and get his response to what the um, the uh, Supreme Court said and their order that was released yesterday. Um, okay, I think he's about to call in right now, so we're going to wait for a minute to see if he calls so we can do the interview, and I'll come back to this story about Saddleback. But again, South Carolina Baptist Convention, they, they can't just tell a church what to do. They can say that if a church chooses to go against the Baptist faith and message, which is our statement of how we as a denomination view the Scripture and, and interpret what the Scripture means— then we, if, if a church violates that in a meaningful way, a significant way, then the convention can just say, okay, we're sending your cooperative dollars back. The cooperative program is what operates our seminaries. It funds the International Mission Board. It funds the North American Mission Board. Um, it keeps the Southern Baptist Convention operating. But we turn those funds back to churches that we withdraw fellowship from. So... Um, that's, that's how the, the break comes about. For example, First Baptist Greenville here in South Carolina, in Greenville, just up the road uh, from where I'm doing this broadcast. I mean, they're, they've been disfellowshipped because they conduct same-sex weddings. They have uh, a gay men's chorale that goes around and sings and does concerts. I mean, there's all kinds of things that they have done that is in violation of Southern Baptist polity. So fellowship was, was withdrawn from them years ago. Now, they still refer to themselves as a Baptist church, but they're not in affiliation with the state Baptist convention or the Southern Baptist convention. Now, the big story about this, of course, is Rick Warren and Saddleback Church, because Saddleback is the largest Southern Baptist church in the country, and they've been disfellowshipped for along with New Faith Missionary Ministry in Griffin, Georgia, St. Timothy's Christian Baptist Church in Baltimore, Maryland, 
Calvary Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, and Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, most of these churches are significant in size and likely in their contributions to the cooperative program. But again, you, you, Southern Baptists have to be able to define what they're going to believe, and they have, they have a, a responsibility to defend that belief and to make sure that the churches that affiliate with the convention are in agreement with what it means to be Southern Baptist. I mean, it seems to me that these churches would want to leave the convention themselves, that instead of having the uh, executive committee having to withdraw fellowship, that if if churches decide that they're not going to respond or be in line with the Baptist faith and message, that they would just choose to withdraw instead of having to be requested, in other words, to have the funds returned and to be disfellowshipped. But uh, Saddleback, it says that they're going to, according to one of the spokesmen, um, I think it's the pastor uh, who is, um, let's see, Andy Wood and his wife, Stacy Wood. See, Stacy Wood, Andy Wood's wife, is kind of the whole what happened here was Saddleback because she was ordained as a teaching pastor. And Andy Wood says, Saddleback has a strong commitment to the authority and errancy of the Bible. We believe this approach is biblical and that it aligns its teaching correctly. All right, we have Josh Kimbrell, Senator Kimbrell, on the phone this morning with us, and we appreciate him taking a few minutes uh, to give us a call. Good morning, Senator. How are you? Good morning, Tony. Good to be with you. It's been a while since. I'm glad to be on the new show. I haven't been on the yeah. new one yet. So. <laughs> well, welcome to it. We appreciate it. This is Truth and Politics, of course, uh, Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam, and it is the first time that Senator Kimbrell's been on since we transitioned from um, his radio talk. I wanted to talk to you this morning. I was like, be careful yeah. about what you're talking about when you say that you're transitioning. You know, that means different <laughs> things than I used to. Well, that's true. That's a word that conservatives are going to have to come up with an alternative, I guess, maybe a, a synonym. Um, in, in looking at this Supreme Court order yesterday in South Carolina as it came down, um, I guess you could say there was good news and bad news. The bad news is that they didn't lift the injunction that is going to keep the heartbeat bill from going into effect until this is decided. But the good news is they decided to expedite the process and oral arguments are going to be June 26. Yeah, look, I'm not overly surprised that there was a decision not to lift the injunction just because procedurally, uh, it's one thing to say, I don't like it. Of course I don't like it, but and procedurally, I'm not really surprised. I am happy that we're having the hearing this month. I fully expect this heartbeat bill to be upheld. There's a lot of reasons for that, but I frankly, and I, we can get into those, but I frankly believe that uh, we're a few weeks away from having this finally become law in South Carolina. The crazy thing is we passed this bill, the first version of it, two, over two years ago, and we've never really seen what it can do because we've never really had the chance between federal and state courts getting involved. Uh, maybe we're finally going to see what this bill actually does for the pro-life movement. Well, I think it was in effect for about a month um, after Roe versus Wade was overturned, and then it was enjoined again. And I believe that the abortion rate in that month dropped by 50 percent. Now, that's not a clear indicator. It's only a month. Uh, it would take much longer than that to determine the long-term effect of having a six-week ban in South Carolina. So I agree with you. I don't think we know yet what the full ramifications are, but hopefully we're going to be able to find out. Now, you Well, you, I think that 50% decrease is a pretty good indicator, by the way. I think that's yeah. probably accurate. I mean, I, I think we'll, we'll see what the long-term numbers are, but my, my hope is that it drives Planned Parenthood completely out of business in South Carolina, and I think it probably will have that effect. Okay, you had mentioned that there were a couple of things about this bill that differed from the original heartbeat bill that you think that the Supreme Court is going to be able to find it constitutional this time. What are those things? How do, how was the bill changed? Well, Senator Davis and Buford and I talked about this together on the floor because we wanted to make sure we were very clear about legislative intent because just as few, the controlling opinion from January that invalidated the prior heartbeat bill I don't agree with a lot of the conclusions, of course, that Justice Hugh came up with, but you still got to try to address those if you can. And his biggest thing was he didn't like that he felt that it was arbitrary that we just picked a date out of the air and said, well, uh, this is when we can't have an abortion. In other words, six weeks, six weeks. And, and, and he said, well, there's no definition 
of how you diagnose a pregnancy. So we made it very clear. We said, look, now the heartbeat bill says once there's a medically diagnosable pregnancy and a heartbeat is detectable, well, that's going to be much more clear. It's harder to say that it's an arbitrary statute whenever we're being very clear in saying that once there's a diagnosable pregnancy, well, how do you do that? Obviously, you can do that through pregnancy tests, through ultrasounds, a whole range of things. So now the arbitrary nature that, that Justice Few cited is no longer the case. We made that very clear both in the statute itself and in the, the uh, legislative debate on the floor. So it's going to be much harder now for Justice Few to say, well, you know, well, this, is, this is an invasion of privacy because there's no clear definition. The definitions are much clearer. We also pulled out contradictory language from prior legislation from the 70s. It talked about codifying abortion. So there's a lot of things that, that, that prevent there from being the constitutional conflict that Justice Few cited. And I think that makes it to where not only do I feel like the new justice that I'm really happy is on the court, Garrison Hill, I think he's a strict constructionist who won't legislate from the bench. I feel like that would give us a much better chance of uh, having this bill upheld anyways. But now I think even Justice Few has much, no pun intended, fewer arguments to try and uh, invalidate this revised version. I think this will be upheld. You know, one of the things that was suggested by another news outlet this week was that Justice Few may double down on his opposition to this simply because uh, he's upset that it would be an all-male court that would make this decision. And, of course, that's I talked about that a little bit earlier today, that progressives are using that as an argument, I believe, to try to pressure Justice Gary Hill, uh, the newest justice on the court, to go along with something that Kay Hearn, the decision that she wrote, because it's not going to be fair if a court of just men make this decision about women. So I want you to respond to that. Well, look, I mean, I, I know Gary Hill. I think he's been he's a good guy. I think he's a strict constructionist who's not going to be uh, bowed by a bunch of political pressure. I, I think it's a complete red herring to say this is all male courts, so therefore it's an unjust ruling. That's, a, that's an absurd argument. Uh, yeah, none of us in the legislature have any problem with there being a female justice. In fact, there's plenty. Of, uh, there's nu numerous candidates out there that I would like to see become the next associate justice of the state supreme court who are women, who are who are constrict constructionists. I just don't want a liberal activist, whether it's male or right. female. Right. I can't imagine that Gary Hill is going to sit here and totally change his judicial philosophy and his first major test on the court. I mean, if you look at his history of casework, the things he's done in the past. The approach he takes to legislative de deference, which de de you should defer to the legislature. In other words, there's this de deference to the legislative process. I don't think Garrison Hill is going to suddenly say, gosh, you know, I don't believe any of that anymore because some liberals made fun of me on Facebook. I just don't think that's how he operates. So right. I would be really surprised if he makes that decision. And I can't speak for Justice Few, but I mean, look, Justice Few is back up for reelection in 2026 to the state Supreme Court. And I can tell you, if he continues to go down this road of judicial activism and trying to invalidate the will of the people through their elected representatives and defy the legislature and over and again, I can I can guarantee you he will not be reappointed to the state Supreme Court. Let me ask you this question about um, the process. We know when oral arguments are going to be held. Uh, how long can we expect it to take for the court to render a decision after the oral arguments? I mean, the last time uh, it took them several months uh, you think we can anticipate that again, that it would take that long? Is there a schedule? Do we know when they would likely come out with a decision? Would it be before the end of the year? Uh, are they bound in any way to uh, render a decision within a certain time frame? Well, I mean, th th there's not a hard and fast rule on that. I mean, there, there's deliberations they get to take after the oral arguments. They'll have to sit there and write their opinions. I would still expect we won't know anything until sometime in July. Um, I, maybe okay. later. I, I hope. Yeah. I, I hope July. But I mean, look, this is a highly contentious issue. They know that the eyes of everybody is upon them. They, there's also a Supreme Court Chief Justice race next year, because Justice Beatty has to retire based on age. So there's going to be a move there to have a race for the Chief Justice role. So that's going to put a lot of attention on the court again for the legislature in January. So uh, I don't think they're going to want to hold on to this football any longer than they have to. I frankly expect there to be a fairly quick decision. Plus, they've already been through this one time. So all they really have to do now is revisit the changes in the bill in this version versus the prior version and make a determination whether or not to uphold it. And uh, I hope that decision is rendered rather quickly because the longer we continue to wait here, uh, the more children are dying and the more we're becoming an abortion destination state. I hope by the legislature having passed the heartbeat bill 2.0 that, that we have a – 
uh, that that has a deterrent effect to, for people trying to open up new clinics here or move here or, or bust people in for abortion. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, we'll well, see. The numbers yeah, are still up right now, Tony. Yeah, we're that's right. We're hearing we're we're hearing from abortion clinics already. Um, about them adding extra hours, having to hire extra people just to be able to keep up with the demand from people coming from other states because we are the abortion destination state in the southeast. And so hopefully this decision will put an end to that. Let's shift our conversation for just a minute back to the recently concluded legislative session. It was session one of a two-year session. Of course, bills that um, will w- maybe didn't get passed this time will be can be taken up again in the new session in 2024. What are you most excited about in terms of what we were able to accomplish from a conservative viewpoint in 2023? And what are you looking forward to working on in 2024? Well, I can tell you 2023 was not my favorite session. We didn't get a lot done that I wanted to get done this year. And, and I think it was a it was a disappointing third year of the term because next year's election year, a lot of things will get kind of wonky next year by virtue of it being uh, an election year. But what we're going to see, I, I feel like, frankly, the greatest success this year, and as bloody as it was in the process of getting there, was getting the heartbeat bill back in place. I mean, I was determined we were not going to be an abortion destination state. I've taken heat on both sides of that issue because I got some folks that want to go to a straight out conception ban, which by the way, I supported the human life protection Act yes. uh, ban at conception, but you're not going to get there right now. The votes aren't there. I tried to make that clear 18 months ago. We could have probably to the point about having to wait for a decision by the court. Tony, if we would have passed the heartbeat bill back in December or January when I wanted to, if the house would have done it, uh, we would have already had the, the court would have already made its decision, right? It could have already happened. But that's neither here nor there. But at least we got this bill back in place. I'm hoping that's upheld. If that is upheld, I'll view that as the greatest victory of the 2023 session. Now, as to 2024, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting the bill that Danny Verden and I have put forward. It's already through medical affairs. I want this bill to ban the gender transition treatment for minors because these kids are – this is abuse. And we got to stop this abuse. And we've, we've already defunded the transgender pediatric clinic at MUSC. I'd like for us to make it unlawful in the state for any minor to have a gender reassignment hormone replacement therapy that's irreversible before they're old enough to make the decision on their own. So I'm looking forward to taking that up next year. I'd also like to see us tackle additional uh, tax cuts. We've got huge surpluses we're still running. We got to see what happens to the economy later in the year. But I'm hopeful we can do another round of tax cuts in 2024 and continue to lower our income tax in South Carolina and potentially pass some uh, some tort reform legislation that makes us more competitive from a, from a small business standpoint. So those are big focuses for next year. I would say top of that list, though, is trying to do something about the abuse of our kids and expanding parental rights. We kind of took a baby step with school choice in South Carolina. Um, I think the education savings accounts are – a good move in that direction, but there are those who want to have more access to more people to have access to school choice going forward. Do you think that's going to be brought back up in 2024? Do you think they're going to try to expand those uh, uh, education savings accounts or go in a different direction? Well, bear in mind, we passed two bills in the Senate, actually. So ESA made it through the house, but we passed two bills for school choice in the Senate. One was the ACE program to expand tax credits. In addition to the ESAs, I, I would agree in describing ESA as a, quote, baby step. That's what it is, a baby step. But it's still the first time in South Carolina history right. we've actually expanded school choice. So it's yes, actually a good step. But it is. We, if the House will pass what the Senate passed for educate for the, uh, uh, the tax credits, the academic choice uh, education credits, the ACE Act, then that's a huge step forward. That's much more than a baby step. We've already passed that in the Senate. I hope the House will take it up. So – you know, school choice has got to happen. We've I've been fighting for that for 20 years, well before I was ever in office, back when you and I did radio together. Yeah. And I, I'm i glad to see that in this uh, in this new Senate, you know, people, it's easy to get discouraged. There's a lot of things that are discouraging. We have seen uh, things that we've all wanted to have happen here, not happen as fast as we'd like. But I will remind people that before 2020, when we did not have the 30-seat majority in the Senate, before folks like I, when I came in in that 2020 class, uh, most we couldn't have even gotten heartbeat back then. We certainly couldn't get school choice. We couldn't do any kind of open carry. And in the last two and a half years, we've managed to pass heartbeat not once but thrice, actually three times. We've managed to pass two two school choice bills in the Senate. We've expanded open carry. 
things are moving in the right direction, no pun intended on the right part. We're moving more conservative, but nothing happens overnight. And we're making, uh, if we can flip another seat or two and maybe have a few primaries in 2024, you might right. see the Senate really move in the right direction. And I think things are, are definitely getting more uh, faith and family and free market oriented in our state. Final question. Uh, on the national level, we've got Mike Pence entering the race. We have, um, of course, Chris Christie made his uh, video yesterday. Uh, he came straight at President Trump, was very critical of him. I'm going to play a little bit of that on the program here in a little while this morning. But um, we know, of course, uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, has been here in South, to South Carolina several times. He was just here last week. Um, and, and several polls indicate that since he has entered the race, that the numbers in Iowa between him and President Trump are beginning to close. DeSantis is gaining on Trump. Do you still see this, or do you see it, as a two-man race? Now, we're up to about 11 candidates, it looks like, so far in the Republican primary. Do you think this is still going to come down to DeSantis-Trump? Yes. And and look, I would say that I believe that there's not a finer person in American politics than Mike Pence. I love the man. Good, a good man, was a great vice president, uh, but that there's not a pathway, in my view, there for him to win the nominations. The only two right. people at this point that have a true pathway to the nomination are Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. I've endorsed Governor DeSantis. Uh, Governor DeSantis is a fiscal and a social conservative. And funny enough, Donald Trump's running to his left. I mean, Trump's out there criticizing the heartbeat bill, criticizing DeSantis standing up for life, criticizing DeSantis standing up for parental rights, a whole range of things, calling him Ron DeSantis, all this. So I believe it is still going to come down to those two. You're right about the Iowa numbers. It is closing between Trump and DeSantis in Iowa. And uh, that's true here. We're starting to see those numbers in South Carolina tighten up. So I, I think we're going to, I don't want to steal the thunder, but there's going to be a pretty, pretty impressive endorsement list. I've worked really hard with the campaign. A number of others have too, that, uh, the DeSantis team here, they're going to, re- we're going to, they're going to release a really impressive steering committee in South Carolina that probably will have more elected officials on it than any other candidate, including president Trump. And I think you'll see that number continue to tighten. Senator Kimbrell, it's always good to talk to you. I'm glad we're able to do that on the new show uh, today. I know you've been a supporter and promoting the show, uh, helping me get the word out that I'm still doing live um, on the Internet and still have the podcast. So thank you for that, and we look forward to the next time we get to talk on the program. Always good to be with you, Tony. Keep up the good work. Thank you, brother. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. All right, Senator Josh Kimbrell, who, again, worked really hard to uh, get the heartbeat bill through the Senate. And as he said, he voted for the Human Life Protection Act, supported it, pushed it in the Senate. But as we've said, the climate in South Carolina, the political climate, particularly in the Senate, is just not open to being able to pass something other than a heartbeat bill. And that requires climate change. And I mean climate change politically, not, not climate change in the climate, but in the political climate in South Carolina. And the only way you can have that is for some of the senators who are not as conservatives as I think the people of South Carolina are when it comes to the issue of life and other issues, quite frankly. Um, there needs to be, you know, the, we have the opportunity, I should say, uh, to have a Republican primary. And some of those folks um, may have competition and it could change the climate in the South Carolina Senate, as Senator Kimbrell talked about. All right, I want to jump on here. Um, we, we don't have a whole lot of time left, about 10 minutes. And I wanted to talk about um, Chris Christie getting into the race, more so about what he had to say. Now, while a lot of candidates, and Christie's going to make this point, you're going to hear it in just a minute, he talks about the fact that a lot of the candidates that are running for president on the Republican side are reluctant to go after President Trump. They, they don't want to say his name. Um, they don't want to alienate the voters because they feel like they're going to have to have some of his supporters switch to them if they're going to have a chance at the nomination. Uh, former Governor Christie, uh, and, and we sh- should anybody be surprised about this? I mean, the guy's a bull in a china shop. Uh, he always has been. He's always gone straight at people um, when in, in terms of politics. Um, I don't know what kind of chance he has at the nomination. I doubt that he has very much. As we just said, I think it's going to come down to, regardless of how many people get in the race, it's going to come down to a contest between DeSantis and Trump. But Chris Christie is certainly not afraid to go after the former president. And he also took a swipe, sort of secondary swipe, 
at his competitors for the Republican nomination by chastising them for not being willing, as he is willing, to go after the president directly. Here's what um, uh, Chris Christie had to say as he launched his campaign yesterday. We have pretenders all around us who want to tell you, pick me, because I'm kind of like what you picked before, but not quite as crazy. But I don't want to say his name because for these other pretenders, he is, for those of you who read the Harry Potter books, like Voldemort. He is he who shall not be named. Well, let me be clear, in case I have not been already. The person I am talking about, who is obsessed with the mirror, who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, and who always finds someone else and something else to blame for whatever goes wrong, but finds every reason to take credit for anything that goes right, is not. And if we don't have that conversation with you, we don't deserve to ask for your vote. We don't deserve the mantle of leadership. We don't deserve to have you think of us as people worthy of leadership. Okay, th this is interesting on a lot of levels um, because it apparently uh, Christie has decided that the path to the nomination in the Republican primary is going to be given to the person, granted to the person who goes hardest at Donald Trump. And I, I, I think this is personal. I think Chris Christie uh, doesn't obviously doesn't like Donald Trump. Uh, I think some of the things that Christie said about Trump and his personality are true. I think voters have weighed that. I think voters know that President Trump is not one to take personal responsibility if things go wrong. I think voters know that President Trump is someone who takes all the credit when things go right. Uh, he has a tendency to blame subordinates. He has a tendency to berate them. Uh, anybody that leaves uh, the service of Donald Trump is likely to find themselves on the other end of his chastisement. Uh, and so, uh, look, I... I know all those things, and most of the voters know those things, and they continue to support Trump. So, I, look, I don't think Christie has a legitimate path to get the nomination, but it's clear that the lane that he's carving out is going to be the one who is to attack the former president. He's going to go at him straight ahead, which most of the other candidates have decided that they can't afford to do. Uh, Trump responded to Christie's announcement with a post on social media. How many times did Chris Christie use the word small? Does he have a psychological problem with size? Actually, his speech was small and not very good. It rambled all over the place, and nobody had a clue of what he was talking about. I, that That's not true. Um, Chris Christie's style has been what it is, and I think people understood the, the direction that he was going. Hard to watch, boring, but that's what you get from a failed governor. New Jersey, who left office with a 7% approval rating and then got run out of New Hampshire. This time, it won't be any different. Now, I'm telling you, that's what you better expect if you're going to go head-to-head -head with Donald Trump. Uh, if you decide you're going to take him on, he's going to, he's going to push back, and he's going to push back hard. Uh, polling analyst Steve Koronaki said late last month that Christie probably faces the steepest hill of any of the 24 GOP candidates to become the party's nominee but signaled that he could do serious damage to Trump. Um, look, I, I just don't think that's true. I don't think he's going to hurt uh, Trump's run at all. In fact, because Chris Christie has had his own problems, for him to go after Trump that way, I don't think it's going to sway any of the Republican base that's likely to continue to support Trump based on attacks coming from Chris Christie. I just don't get where these guys think that they, they, he's going to make that much of a difference. Yeah, he's going to be an attack dog, uh, but he's not, he's not going to be a German Shepherd or, or a Doberman. He's going to be more like a little Chihuahua over here, yapping at the president's heels. And, I, you know, I don't think that's going to make a, a tremendous amount of difference. 
Um, all right, I wanted to get to the story quickly because I, I want to get um, someone on here in South Carolina from Moms for Li- with Moms for Liberty. Um, in fact, I sent a text message this morning to Lisa Watson. Uh, she's the head of Moms for Liberty in South Carolina. Now, I'm, I'm not being critical. I, <laughs> I didn't give her any warning. I sent the text message this morning and said, hey, can you, can you come on the show? She has said she'd be glad to come on. It's just a matter of, of, of timing. Um, and I really didn't expect her to respond at the last minute. But I would like to have her on now particularly to talk about this story that just came out about the Moms for Liberty being included on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list of terrorist organizations. I mean, they're essentially being called terrorist uh, because that they're going to school board meetings, they're uh, actually getting involved, trying to get uh, parents to be more active in knowing what their children are being taught in school. And because of that, they're being referred to as terrorists by the Southern Poverty Law Center and they're being accused of hate and extremism. This is coming from Fox News. A new report from the Southern Poverty Law Center lists some parents' rights organizations as hate and anti-government groups akin to neo-Nazis and the Ku Klux Klan. Folks, the Southern Poverty Law Center, we, we cannot, as a civilized people, allow organizations like this to smear good groups that are out trying to engage people in the political process for a legitimate concern that they're expressing about our country, and yet they're getting smeared by the SPLC and falsely accused of being a terrorist organization aligned with, the, with Nazis somehow and white supremacist groups. That's absolutely absurd. It proves that the Southern Poverty Law Center has absolutely no integrity They have no intention of being honest in the way that they evaluate these groups. They are a political organization that is dedicated to the destruction of conservatism and Christians in particular. And this this is, I mean, we just, they need to lay down any kind of pretense of being some kind of, um, you know, arbitrator that just gathers information and then puts it out in some kind of non-biased fashion. With the release of their Year in Hate and Extremism 2022 report on Tuesday, they appeared to change their infamous hate map to now be a map of hate and anti-government groups. After counting 733 hate groups in 2021, they increased that number to 1,225 in the 2022 report, and a lot of them were focused on education. At the forefront of the mobilization is a group called Moms for Liberty. And they've got a chapter, as I said, here in South Carolina that's been very active and very supportive down at the legislature for true conservatism. Uh, They're a Florida-based group with vast connections to the GOP that this year the SPLC designated them as an extremist group. Think about that. Moms for Liberty, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban. neo-Nazis. Do you think there's anything about even the names of those groups that have anything in common with each other? Uh, Obviously, Moms for Liberties go to school board meetings across the country. They wear shirts, carry signs that say, we do not co-parent with the government. Now, according to Southern Poverty Law Center, that's a terrible thing to say. I, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to say for parents to say we don't want the government as the co-parent in our home. We don't want the government telling us how to raise our children. And for Moms for Liberty to be able to make that point, uh, and the fact that they actually go to school board meetings and they won't be shut down. See, these school boards that are controlled by progressives um, are accustomed to be able to just cut off conservative debate. They can just they, they control the microphone. Uh, they can push back. And when parents show up in great numbers and they push back against the progressives, then that becomes a hate group. They become a hate group simply because they're expressing their desire to make sure that parents get to keep being parents and that the government stays out of their business. And so that's why Moms for Liberty, um, I, I think they're cura- courageous. I, I appreciate the work that they do here in South Carolina. And I'm looking forward to having Lisa Wilson on the program 
to talk about it coming up soon. That's all the time we've got for today. Like I said, we got a ton of stories. So tomorrow's program, you're not going to want to miss it. We'll be right back here, 7.30 in the morning, live with another edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And, of course, if you want to get this program, uh, it's easy to find. You can go to wherever you download your podcast, and you can get the program there. You can find it at Apple Podcasts. You can find it at Spotify um, and other places where podcasts are available. I hope you'll do that. Go and just... You don't have to really subscribe. You can just follow it, and it'll come straight to your smart device. And you can follow me on YouTube and Facebook Live as well, where you can get into a conversation with others who are watching or listening to the program. God bless you. My thanks again to Senator Kimball for joining us today. I'll see you in the morning at 730 with more Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Bain.